to, to read again from the passage that we read in the morning, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, the fourth book in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers and chapter 20. And uh, we'll read the opening 13 verses again. So Numbers chapter 20, that's on page 176 in the Church Bible, page 176, Numbers 20. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines of pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together, Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, or contention, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. And especially uh, focusing on verses 10 and 11, where Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now we're continuing our study, obviously, from the morning. And we're looking at this second occasion on which God produced water from the rock, <clears throat> obviously, miraculously. 
And as we saw in the morning, this occasion is very different from the first occasion, which was actually 40 years before this. And perhaps the main difference is that on this occasion, it's not just the congregation or the people that sin, but very clearly Moses and Aaron sin too. And uh, as we saw, their sin was so great that it excluded them both from the land of promise. Now, entering the promised land was something that was uh, very important to them. And in a sense, you could say that they had worked for that for a long, long time. But because of what happened here at this rock, they are prohibiting, prohibited from entering. And within a few weeks, Aaron dies. And a few months after that, Moses dies. So in this year, as we saw earlier, you have the death of Miriam, but then you have the death of Moses and Aaron under the chastising hand of God, almost immediately following this incident. Now, all that is important because it tells us, as I said in the morning, that there's more going on in this passage than meets the eye, as is so often the case with the scripture. It invites you to go further and to ask, what is really happening? Or what was it about this incident that was so catastrophic in the life of Moses and Aaron? Now, we began looking at their sin, and we began looking at it as a sin in thought, word, and action. We're familiar with that. We have often heard in prayers and used it in prayers. We ask God to forgive our sins of thought, word, and deed, of thought, word, and action. And uh, it's important to trace the sin in these three areas, thoughts, words, and actions. And in the morning, we noticed the sin in thought or in their emotional life. It's uh, quite clear that Moses and Aaron gave way to anger. They gave way to anger. Um, in fact, there's a word used in the Psalms which indicate that Moses shook when he spoke. And we're told, of course, that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. And uh, we saw too how he was like that, even though he had gone into the presence of God, fallen on his face, and Aaron too, they had both gone into God's presence and fallen on their face. Uh, but even that encounter with God didn't take their anger away from their hearts. Prayer doesn't always deal with everything, not unless we pray properly and in the right spirit. So they went into God's presence angry, and it's obvious, sadly, that they came out of God's presence angrily too. Now, it's no surprise that anger like this breaks out in word and in action. And it's always bad when any sin externalizes itself like that. It's bad enough for the sin to exist internally in the heart, but it's worse when it manifests itself externally, either in the words that we speak or in the actions that we perform. That adds to the guilt of the sin, and it makes more damage to other people too. Um, we'll, we'll refer in a minute to the words that the Lord Jesus used. He, uh, he spoke about um, being angry in the heart or hating a brother with a heart. Uh, 
and uh, how that was a, a degree of murder. said that if you actually bear genuine hatred to your brother in your heart, he says that is murder, although it hasn't yet externalized itself indeed. The germ of it is there. It is murder to some degree, if not murder in the first degree. He spoke the same in connection with adultery. He said that suppose you lust after a woman in your heart. He says then you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Now again, that is not obviously adultery of the first degree because it hasn't externalized itself. You can't say that it's the same internal and external because it's not. Once it externalizes, it affects another person. It affects other families. It affects people. The deed is done. But nonetheless, the Lord says that even when it's inside, that is the nature of the sin. It is adultery if it just exists in your own heart. Now, when it comes to expressing anger in words, the fact of the matter is that anger, uh, sorry, the fact of the matter is that words don't just express your anger. I mean, that would be one problem. Words don't just express your anger, but surprisingly, the words that you use feed your anger, and they, they make your anger worse. Now, that's what James taught in the passage that we read from the letter of James. He tells us that the tongue, he says itself, is a fire. It's a fire because he says it is set on fire by hell. In other words, once your tongue starts moving in this direction of being angry or even slandering or something of that kind, he says that your tongue is set on fire by the power of hell, really. That's what he means by saying set on fire by hell. The, the power of darkness is at work. Sin is at work when you begin to speak. And then he goes on to say something that sounds unusual. He says that the tongue then sets on fire the course of nature. So sin sets the tongue on fire, and once the tongue moves, he says, it sets on fire the course of nature, as though human nature is ready to burn, just like dry tinder is just ready to burn. All it needs is the spark, and that spark is provided by the sinful tongue. Now, there's something unexpected about this teaching. In fact, looking at it like that, if you say that the tongue sets human nature on fire, you're bound to think of it like this, that, that your tongue, once you speak, sends someone else's nature on fire. That's easy enough to understand. We, we see that happening all the time. You just speak, and you speak in wrath. You, let, you give vent to your anger, and it sets the sinful human nature of other people on fire. That's obvious. That's true. That's easy to understand. But that's not what James is actually saying. What James is saying is different. What James is saying is that once you begin to speak, you set your own nature on fire. And to emphasize that that's what he means, he actually compares it to a bit in a horse's mouth or to a rudder in a ship. And these are very deliberate comparisons. He says if, if you look at a large ship, even in the teeth of a storm, he says, if you set the rudder in a certain direction, he says, the boat will follow that rudder. It's only a little part of the boat, 
but the boat moves in the direction that the rudder demands it to move. And again, he says the same is true with respect to the animal kingdom. He says you put a bit in a horse's mouth, and you do that to direct the horse. You tug to the left, the horse moves to the left. You tug to the right, the horse moves. It's only a tiny little bit, and yet it moves that whole powerful body of the horse. So, he says, it is with the tongue. Now, obviously, then, he's not talking about the power of your tongue to make someone else angry, which is real and true and a problem. He's actually talking about the power of your tongue to make yourself worse than you actually are. Now, how does that work? Well, it works in quite a straightforward way. Once you start giving vent to the anger that you feel, what actually happens is something akin to hearing yourself speak. And you actually end up motivating yourself or effectively exhorting yourself to keep going in the direction that you've started. Uh, To carry on with the same figure that James uses, you're inflaming the situation. You're further inflaming yourself by adding your tongue to your emotions. Now, most of us will know that, I'm sure. Some people may be more than others, but how often have you said to yourself, well, I wish I'd said nothing. Wish I'd said nothing. In other words, I felt that and I thought it, but I wish I'd kept my mouth shut because once you spoke, it wasn't just the damage that you did with what you spoke, but you ended up saying far more than you intended to say when you began to speak because you motivated yourself. You exhorted yourself. Your own tongue encouraged you along. It actually acted like a vent in that sense. You weren't just giving vent to what you thought, but you actually ventilated it. You gave it more air, and out it came. Um, Your words, in other words, gave oxygen to the fire of anger. Your words gave oxygen to the fire of anger. And uh, I think you could say something like this, that if you deny anger the oxygen of words, then the fire will go out. If you deny anger the oxygen of words, the fire will likely go out. Now, we need to remember that. As the scripture says in the book of Proverbs, in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, or in the multitude of words there is no lack of sin. Most of us as a rule, I mean, some of us may be too quiet. Some people are very, very quiet in life. But most of us maybe learn to, need to learn to say less, especially in difficult situations. Especially if you feel anger, just restrain it and call upon the Lord's self and don't speak until you're back in control of what you need to say. That doesn't mean that you can't speak stiffly or sternly. You absolutely can You can utter a rebuke too, but the Spirit is everything. As we'll see in connection with Moses, the Spirit is everything. Now, the psalmist tells us what was wrong with Moses. In Psalm 106, we're told that when he shook, which is what the word means, that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. He spoke unadvisedly with his lips. Now, this word, translated unadvisedly, is not a common word in the Hebrew language. It can mean thoughtlessly, 
or it can mean carelessly. But when it's used in the book of Proverbs, the person who speaks unadvisedly is compared to someone who has a sword and who pierces with the sword. Now, that's an interesting comparison because that brings you close to what the Hebrew word must actually mean. It doesn't simply mean to speak carelessly or to speak thoughtlessly. It means to speak like someone who has a sword. In other words, well, it's even more than rashly. It's aggressively. Aggressive language. An aggressive spirit producing aggressive language. And uh, don't forget that this comes from the man of whom we saw in the morning that he was the meekest man on the face of the whole earth. If there was one area of life you thought he didn't have to guard, it was his temper. But there's no area of your life that you don't have to guard. I can think of myself of certain things that I'm, I'm not particularly tempted with. I've never really been tempted to drink too much or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that I have to be careful that I don't, don't drink too much. Um, I remember reading about Dumbarton Rock when uh, Dumbarton Rock was conquered uh, many, many years ago. It was conquered not by people who broke through the heavy forti fortifications in the one area where you can access Dumbarton Rock. It was captured, it was seized by people who scaled the face that was thought to be unscalable. And, and there was no effort made to look, to look after that. There was no need to be vigilant there. Ah, but there was need to be vigilant there. And, and so there's no part of life where you don't have to be careful. You may say to yourself, well, I, I'm not going to be tempted with something like adultery or something like that. Well, who says so? Are you absolutely sure about that yourself? Maybe you can look at other people committing certain sins and say, oh, well, how could, how could they have done that, whatever? Well, they do that because they're fallen sinful people. That's how we all do what we do. And as Christians, we need to be vigilant in every single area of life. Moses fell with anger when he was the meekest man on the face of the whole earth. There are other examples of that kind too. So we spoke aggressively. Now, if you wonder how he spoke aggressively or how does the aggression appear in his words, it obviously appears in the expression, hear now you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Verse 10. Rebels, he calls the people of God. Now there's a difficulty here. <laughs> the difficulty is that he's right. You can't deny that that is a, a rebellious spirit. Maybe it's not quite as strong as Moses thought it was because he was comparing them to their fathers 40 years ago, which as we saw in the morning wasn't a fair comparison. But sometimes even if a thing is right to say, maybe you have no right to say it, or no right to say it in anger, or to say it in contempt. After all, you can call people fools in different ways. I could have a discussion, for example, with an atheist and say to him, well, it would be right for me to call you a fool because the Bible calls you a fool. So I'm calling that person a fool. But I'm not calling that person a fool by holding him in contempt. I don't mean to speak contemptuously of that person. So I would be accurate in my language, and it would be fair to say because the motive is right and the spirit is right. 
But the Lord Jesus warns us against using words which are true and correct if the Spirit is not right in using them. For example, uh, he says in Matthew 5, 22, might be worth turning to this actually, it's easy enough for you to, to find it. The first gospel, Matthew 5, and verse 21. That's page treble one five in the church Bible, page treble one five. Matthew five twenty one. Jesus, first of all, gives the Pharisees' understanding of the Old Testament. You have heard, in other words, you have heard the Pharisees teach you that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And so it was. That is the uh, sixth commandment. And, and this is what the Pharisees add here, that whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, that little expression reminds us that there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is sometimes a reason to be angry. And providing that anger is right, motivated by the right spirit, and kept in the right check, that's fine. But whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And then he goes further and says this, whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head or idiot, shall be in danger of the council. In other words, the church authorities. To be, to be saying that kind of thing to your brother should bring a person before the authorities of the church. You can't be going around just slagging off the people of God like that. You can't be doing that. And then he goes further still, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. That word fool is the Greek word more, which is the word moron. And uh, interestingly, although moron has a technical meaning, like the word idiot having a technical meaning, we use the word moron and idiot in very specific ways ourselves. So you could say to somebody, possibly technically within the limits of the English language, you could say, you're a moron. But of course, you seldom say that, do you? You say, you're a moron, because you are, you are insulting the person. And that's what the Lord is warning against here. You, it's the spirit behind the words. Your spirit is not right. The, the love is not there, the care is not there, the compassion is not there, which you ought to have even to the enemies of the gospel. Although it's right to have an indignation against them too, on account of their sin and so on, that must never be divorced from the love and compassion of the Lord. And that just falls when you use certain words. And that takes us to what Moses is guilty of here. It's not the technical term rebel that's the problem. It's that he uses a term of contempt for the people of God because sad to say, well, I don't know if here again words, maybe my own word there isn't, isn't so good. Um, it, it's akin to, he feels a kind of, well, he certainly feels an anger and he feels a frustration that this people, like their father, seem to be unteachable. They, they seem to be falling into the same kind of things again and again. And just for a moment here, and maybe more than a moment, he can't get rid of this. And it's in anger that he stands in front of that rock and he says, listen, he says, you rebels, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? You know yourself that um, 
a rebuke that's not given in love is, is simply better not given. I can honestly say that. A rebuke that's not given in love is better not given. It's also the case that once you speak harsh words, a situation is created that's pretty hard to put right. Um, once you create a rupture or a breach, it's very hard to heal it. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time to tear and a time to mend. But you'll discover that as far as anger goes, the tears that it makes are really, really difficult to mend. It's easy to tear. It's hard to mend. Well, just think about that in the natural world. You've got a piece of fabric, tear it, it's gone. Sew it together, not so easy. Especially not so easy to make it look good and to make it function right as it originally did. Now, it's not surprising that Moses aggressive words also led to careless words. I'm not saying that the aggressive ones weren't careless, but there are other words here that are careless even if they're not aggressive. But it's no surprise to find them together. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Listen, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Whatever the precise intention behind saying, we, it's obvious that the effect is that it takes glory away from God and it takes glory to man. Not unto us, Lord, not to us, but do thou glory give to thy great name for thy truth and mercy's sake. That's forgotten here. When, Moses, did you bring water from any rock ever? Never then how do you dream of saying, must we fetch water out of this rock? Um, God is jealous, zealous or jealous of his own glory. There, there is no other God but him. And for the creature in any way to invest itself with the glory of the creator is anathema. I don't know if you remember the speech that Herod made in Acts 12, Herod Agrippa, not Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great, but Herod Agrippa. He made a speech at the end of Acts chapter 12, and it was an oration, we're told. He prepared a great speech, and as he was delivering the speech, he was obviously a very able man, but the gathered assembly, representing different constituencies, actually began to shout out in the middle of the oration, it is the voice of God, it is the voice of a God and not the voice of man. And we're told that immediately, immediately Herod was struck down, quote, because he did not give the glory to God. And that's a man of the world. That's a man of the world. He didn't give glory. In fact, the obvious implication is that he took the glory. It's the product of my imagination. It's the product of my intellectual power. I did this. I created this oration. Of course, if, if you're not a believer tonight, then I suppose you're ultimately really giving yourself the glory for, for who and what you are. Sometimes the world is quite open and honest about that. It says, well, I got where I am by sheer hard work and by sheer effort, and I put in the hours, and uh, I studied, and I got this, and I got that. It's my talent. It's my gift. I used my talent. I used my gift. I don't know how well that will fare on judgment, eh? when all you have to say to God is I, I, I. But even if you're a, 
a believer, you have to be careful about something like this. If, if you're ever praised for something you do or an attainment, you must give the glory to God for it. Find a way of doing it, even if it's quite a simple way. There was a very eminent preacher uh, once upon a time, and uh, he felt that quite often people were saying that this was good or whatever it was. And his shorthand way of giving glory to God was he would just simply point upwards. That's all he did. Uh, because maybe it was just kind of repetitive, maybe, to say the same thing all the time. But he would just point upwards. And we mustn't be afraid of repetition. Give, if, 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 if you get liberty in prayer or something and somebody says, so say something, even a little thing that says, well, I was helped or I was enabled or, or thank God for that, anything. It's never really repetitive. It's never too much. If it was worth saying something positive about you in the situation, it's worth you taking that thing and giving it to God. It's like the person who said once that he was tired of saying so many graces in the day. And the other person said to him, well, obviously you're eating too much. Um, if, if we're receiving something, let's always acknowledge it. Let's always acknowledge where it came from. In other words, we're to be what is called self-effacing. That's a rare virtue nowadays. You're meant to stick your face everywhere so that people can see your face everywhere. But a Christian is meant to be self-effacing. The word effacing means essentially to scrub your face out. And I, I think there's, there's no better a description of how we should be as Christians. Scrub your face out. So that when people are in contact with you, that they should see none save Jesus only. In other words, there's no glory attached to you or to me. Only glory the only face to be visible, as it were, is the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when the disciples themselves appeared before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them all, but it wasn't publicly wise in policy to do that, but they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. It's a, it's a very interesting expression, that, that they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. At one level, it must have been obvious that they had been with Jesus. I mean, that's who they were, but they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. There was something Christ-centered about them, in other words. They were Christ-centered in speech. They were Christ-centered in behavior. They were self-effacing, erasing their own faces so that the face of the Lord Jesus Christ alone was there. Now, Moses and Aaron, remember, in the, from the morning, obviously insulted God's people and they robbed God of his glory. Now there's more to it than that because the anger that reveals itself in words unsurprisingly also spills over into their actions. Moses, we're told in verse 11, lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now, this is a little more complicated. Nowhere does God actually tell Moses to strike the rock at all. If you read the account carefully, you'll notice that God doesn't tell Moses to strike the rock. It is possible that you could infer that Moses had been told to strike the rock, or that 
Moses could have understood that this was what he was supposed to do because he had done that 40 years earlier. He had struck the rock with his rod and the water came out. But I want you to note two things. First of all, the rod that Moses took is not actually his own rod. When God said to him, take the rod, we're actually told later in verse 9, well, we're told in verse 8, take the rod. In verse 9, we're told that Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. Now, there was only one rod that was before the Lord. Before the Lord here means to be laid up um, inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, uh, the, uh, to be inside the ark that was placed inside the Holy of Holies. The rod that was placed there was the rod of Aaron. Now, this takes us back a couple of chapters, but there was a dispute over the priesthood and who had a right to be a priest. And there were people who were claiming the right to be rulers like Moses. Others of the people were claiming the right to be essentially ministers or priests like Aaron. And there was a test devised. The, the head of each tribe presented a rod, uh, which meant um, their own government or, or their princes or rulers, a, a rod for a tribe. And these rods were, were laid up in the presence of God overnight. And when the rods were examined in the morning, Aaron's rod had actually budded. There were almonds in the three stages of buds, blossoms, and fruit. And God told, I mean, that was a sign that Aaron's priesthood was effectual, that Aaron's intercession was effectual before God. So God said to Moses to place that rod of Aaron before the Lord, and it was to be kept before the Lord. Moses' rod wasn't. Moses' rod was one that he took with him everywhere at all times, but the rod of Aaron from that point onwards was kept before the Lord. And that rod represents priesthood, and it represents intercession. It represents the power of prayer, because our Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, is always in the presence of God. He died once for us in a sacrifice, but he always lives in the presence of God. He ever liveth. What for? To make intercession for us to speak on our behalf so that God um, authorizes him to send the Holy Spirit into the life of all his people. Now, when you couple that fact, the identity of the rod, with this second fact that Moses was simply told to speak to the rock, not to the people, um, yes, it says in verse 8, speak to the rock before their eyes. So God simply told Moses to speak to the rock, not to the people. Speaking to the rock, I would imagine, would be something like calling upon the name of God, asking him in his great mercy and kindness to provide water for the people, and then commanding the rock in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in commanding um, the rock in the name of God to yield water for the people. That's what I would imagine speaking to the rock means. It means 
calling upon God and commanding the rock in God's name, not by his own power, but in God's name to bring water to the people. But not so. You'll notice that what he does is he turns with anger and he insults the people and he turns around with a rod that is meant to be a symbolic rod, a rod that preaches about prayer and its power, a rod that has buds and blossoms and almonds on it, and he hits it hard, not just once, but twice against the rock. Even the first time, when he was told 40 years earlier to smite the rock, he only struck it once, but this time he smites it twice. Why? Because he's angry. He's angry. Maybe even it's Maybe even that is actually giving a false impression to people too. After all, when he has used the words rebels, must we fetch you water from this rock? The very act of smiting it hard twice seems to indicate that it's themselves. We're doing it. So in other words, Moses isn't just angry and Aaron isn't just angry. And and they're both not simply just disobedient, but they are destroying a type, a powerful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The priestly rod of intercession was meant to be held there as the power of the priesthood. And uh, a rod that was different from the rod of Moses. And it was symbolizing the power of prayer in order to bring the blessing down upon the congregation. I don't know if this is integral to the type, I only mention it because it may be integral to the type. But the word that's used consistently of rock here is very different from the word used for rock in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the word is just a plain rock, just a plain ordinary rock. But here in Numbers 20, it is an elevated cliff or a crag. And again, I I wouldn't be dogmatic on this point at all, but... I can't help wondering if there is a symbolism there. If, if the first striking was meant to be Christ's suffering on the cross, if he was struck with the law of Moses, which symbolized judgment and righteousness and anger, if Christ was struck with that so that the water of blessing came out, all of which is true, then does this not envisage the exalted, elevated Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't need to be struck a second time, He came once to deal with our sins. All he needs now is to be asked. Ask, and it shall be given you. Speak to the rock, and it will pour out its water upon you. Moses destroyed that type. He took a holy thing, and sad to say, he dealt with it irreverently. As God says, you did not hallow me before the assembly. You did not hallow me before the assembly. They didn't believe God, I think in the sense that they didn't take God at his word. They didn't follow the instructions exactly, and they didn't hallow him by by preserving God's glory in the way in which they should and respecting God's intended type. And of course, Moses and Aaron did this as leaders of the assembly. When when James is speaking about the tongue in chapter 3, you'll notice that he begins it by saying, Brethren, don't let many of you become teachers. 
because, he says, we shall receive a stricter judgment. Case in point. Case in point. And again, not only was this an offense by the leaders of the assembly, but it was in the eyes of the people. The people saw the anger, and they heard the insults. Now, I'm sure the more gracious of them, and I'm sure that was most of them, took it for what it was and moved on from it. But God will preserve his sanctity. God must preserve his sanctity. And in fact, even if we forget to hallow God, if we don't reverence him in his assemblies and in his congregation, and if we don't reverence him in life, he will be reverenced in us and through us one way or another. God will have his holiness. God is mocked on the one hand. God is not mocked on the other. Aren't both these statements true? God is mocked. God is not mocked. Both these statements are true. God is not hallowed. God will be hallowed. Where is God hallowed in this whole incident? Well, he's hallowed in the chastisement that he gives to Moses and Aaron for a start. He's hallowed in that. You you know, it's a very solemn day just a few weeks later when Moses, Aaron, and Eliezer go up the hill and only two of them come back down. A very solemn moment. Not only that, When Moses, Aaron, and Eliezer go up, Aaron is adorned in the clothes of the priesthood. When only Moses and Eliezer come back down, Eliezer is clothed with the clothes of the priesthood. Just like that, Aaron is gone. God is hallowed. God is hallowed. When Moses ascends Mount Nebo, just as the the congregation is about to be ready to go into the promised land, He disappears from view. We're told that he died there and God buried him there. He never came back down. And Israel knows in both cases it's because of what they did here. God wasn't hallowed. God was hallowed. He's also hallowed in something else. He's hallowed in grace Because the astonishing thing is, and we can easily overlook this, the astonishing thing is that the water flowed from the rock after all. In in some ways, this is is astonishing, really, that you would have said that the whole thing was so bad that no good could come from it. But that's not so. This teaches that sometimes even if everything is not done right or properly, that God may still bless. If God wants his people to be watered and to receive his grace and his kindness, they will receive grace and kindness. Even if Moses fails and even if Aaron fails, not only will they continue to receive grace, but the people will receive grace too. God doesn't show kindness to us because we are kind. God doesn't bestow grace upon us because we ourselves are gracious. There is a connection between the two but they're not cause and effect. God doesn't show grace to us because we are gracious. He shows grace to us because he is gracious. And I mean, here is a case. If Exodus 17 was a case of sin abounding and grace much more abounding, when the people complained and water came from a rock, this is even more so 
sin abounding and grace much more abounding. When the people complained and Moses and Aaron stepped out of line, but grace did much more abound. Friends, how thankful are you tonight that God, as well as being just and holy, is good and merciful and gracious and kind? That's why I'm standing here tonight preaching the gospel. If I was to be dealt with according to my deserts, I wouldn't be here. If you were to be dealt with according to yours, neither would you be here. God is slow to wrath, plenteous in mercy. He will not chide continually, nor keep his anger still. And uh, we can't say that God's done us good because we're good. We can say that God's done us good in spite of our sins and our iniquities. The water flowed out for this congregation. And in, in the space of a few short months, they lost Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. But as I said in the morning, as Jonathan Edwards pointed out, in spite of this failure at the rock, the congregation here were not like their fathers. They had learned. And they became strong in the conquest of the land and in living to the glory of God. Maybe that's for another time, but we've looked on four occasions at water from the rock and made encourages not to grumble, not to complain, but just to ask now. He's been smitten once, just ask and you'll receive. Our great need, friends, is the Holy Spirit. I can say that, honestly. Your greatest need and mine is the Holy Spirit of God. Just ask and it shall be given you. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, uh, we are thankful indeed that even your chastisement is a blessing and uh, that no wound inflicted upon your people is designed to hamper them or to discourage them. And uh, those who are your people have learned that such chastisement is a mark of sonship. And it is a blessing to have a father who cares enough to correct us, to teach us, and to train us. Not just by word, but by providence too. And we have the confidence in knowing tonight that everything in our portion Everything, however bitter or hard it might be, is designed to bring us on in the life of grace and to make us more like our great Lord and Savior. Help us then to give praise and to be thankful all the day long. And whatever the world feels like today, we rejoice that this Sabbath day is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and we'll be glad in it. And we pray that any unconverted still amongst ourselves might come to this rock themselves. If they do, they will find him a rock and a stay, one who is reliable and durable, one who is worthy of all our rest and all our trust. Coming to him is like in a desert, taking relief in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we'll read now in Psalm 84, 
on page 338. And this is a people who are looking for water in the right place and in the right way. They're on their journey to Jerusalem, which is in the psalm so often a picture of our journey to heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to our Father's house. And uh, those who are believers can be spoken of as dwelling there. Um, that's where our citizenship is. And already um, we sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 4, blessed are they in thy house that dwell, they ever give thee praise. Blessed is the man whose strength thou art, in whose heart are thy ways. Now that kind of person makes his way to Jerusalem like this. He passes through the valley of sorrow, passing through Baker's Vale. Notice what he does. He digs up wells. Also the rain that falleth down, which is a picture of the blessing of God, the pools with water fills. And the result so they from strength, unwearied go, still forward unto strength, until in Zion they appear before the Lord at length. I'm sure, like myself, your own instinct is to sing these things, and I'm glad that that's our instinct. And perhaps when praise is restored to God's house, we'll all value it maybe more than we did. May the Lord... A bless our readings and meditation on his word. Let's stand and receive the Lord's benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.